Welcome to Season 3 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Daniel Reynolds talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unboxed Inspiration to Publication, Episode 54, Relics of Rajvahara. Today, I am joined by Joe Slack, the designer of Kingdom Candy, Monsters, Zoo Year's Eve, our Spotlight, and of course, also a game design instructor. Hey, Joe, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Danielle, thanks for having me on. Of course. I would love for you to tell everybody how you got into the gaming industry and especially how you became an instructor on game design itself. Sure. Um, Well, I grew up uh, playing games as a kid, Um, lots of board games, card games with family, got into video games, then back into card card games and board games. And, uh, you know, uh, one day just decided um, after playing, you know, a party game with my friends way too many times and it'd be kind of coming kind of a little bit stale thinking oh, I could come up with something, uh, I think, better than this or, or more fun or something we can enjoy. And that's when I started designing games. And that was that was, you know, my first foray into it. And I really enjoyed it and didn't know what I was doing until I, you know, understood and, and you know, Got together with some gaming groups, uh, with other designers. And then from there, I just designed um, one game after the other and decided um, eventually that this is this is what I wanted to do for my living. So I wanted to design games. And I was very fortunate um, at the same time that I left my job and decided I was going to do this full time. Um, an opportunity came up at Laurier University for the game design and development program. And uh, luckily, I, I met all the qualifications, and um, and I was a good fit. Uh, so I, I taught there for a semester, uh, t- doing a contract, um, covering a mat leave, and uh, from there, I you know started teaching my own course online as well. Oh, that's so awesome! It sounds like just the perfect timing. Yeah, it really worked out well. I was I was really happy about uh, how it all worked out, and it was a great experience at Laurier, and kind of set me up for uh, the future. And I knew I wanted to be able to teach more than just you know a class of uh, forty students who uh, were doing this for the university degree. I wanted to be able to teach and help people around the world, uh, not just people in that kind of small geography. Um, and I thought an online course would be uh, the perfect way to do that, especially with uh, more support than I've seen on any other courses um, in that manner. Uh, being able to answer questions and, and get on Q&A calls with uh, with my members. That's so awesome. Is that like a monthly thing or is it like a semester? How is that set up? Uh, so when people join the course, uh, they have access to all the videos, transcripts and materials for life. And then they also get uh, a membership with the course. So if they join the board game design course, they get three months of the community, which is a private Facebook group, as well as Q&A calls. And I do the calls uh, twice a month. So a uh, minimum of six calls. Uh, with me in a group setting. And then um, if people want to, they can um, extend it beyond that and, you know, uh, you know, uh, dive in for an extra, say, uh, year of uh, the community and that type of thing. And, and some members uh, continue to do that so they can continue to evolve their game and continue to ask questions and get help all the way through. Very cool. I love it. <laughs> and so then let's switch over to our spotlight Talk about your game. How do you play Relics of Rajavahara? Well, it's a solo game, um, and it's it's a very puzzly type of a game where you're moving from one level to the next, trying to advance and uh, trying to basically beat the game. And the idea came from a lot of different uh, puzzly video games that I, I, I played growing up and even into my adult life, uh, particularly ones on uh, the NES, Nintendo Entertainment System, um, where you have like maybe... Zelda, for example, where you have some some levels where you have to push around some blocks and kind of figure out some patterns. Um, and then like Kiko Cubicle, 
uh, Adventures of Lolo, and one of my favorites of all time, uh, which is called Fire and Ice, a game where you have to push around these blocks and destroy ice blocks to try to figure out how to put out all the fires or, um, you know, get to the end of the level. And I thought, you know, I haven't really seen this done in a tactile, physical tabletop game. So I thought, you know, could this actually work? Set out to um, create some levels and test it out. And seemed like the concept kind of held water. It, it needed more to it. It needed to evolve more from that. But it morphed into um, this puzzly game where you're uh, in the first uh, floor. You're moving around crates, uh, trying to uh, kind of get your way up to the top to capture a gem. And from one level to the next, much like a video game, uh, you set up the next level and it gems in a certain different place and you have to find out different techniques uh, and ways to get around to, to get to that gem. And then at the end of the level, after you get to the 10th floor, you've got your nemesis uh, who is uh, in, this, in this palace and he's trying to stop you and you've got to drop a block on him, but he escapes into the next room and then you open a new box. So it's a really experience of opening up a new level, a new floor, where you're getting something else. So the next one you open up, you get boulders. And oh, what do these boulders do? So every time you open a box, there's something new to learn and a set of new levels. And you'll go through a series of five of these boxes, a uh, total of 50 levels, until you finally defeat your nemesis and um, and you know, you've, you've saved the world. Uh, but it doesn't stop there, because I, I didn't want it to just be uh, you know, beginning and an end. Uh, there's also a set of different levels and cards you can play where you can go back to some of these old levels, replay them with all new challenges, different setup. And now instead of just having to get the gem, you have to, um, you know, put out a couple different fires. You have to drop a block on the nemesis. You have to do a couple different things. So they get even more challenging and it gives a lot more replayability. It kind of makes me laugh. The thought of just like always dropping a block on a nemesis. It feels very <laughs> like Wreck-It Ralph. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, I, for my Kickstarter, I used Kagan Productions and Ori Kagan did an amazing video. And uh, it, it, near the end of the video, um, when it's talking about how you play and how you finally get to your nemesis, you see the character jump up, push a block, and and the uh, nemesis is is cackling, ha ha ha, ah, as as the block you know falls on him, and it's it's you just you know capture that you know feeling perfectly. That's so awesome. I was also obsessed with those kinds of games, like the either mm. kicking the block to move it forward, but you couldn't actually pull it back because for some reason, I guess that's like when you move a couch when you're a kid. It's like you can somehow push with your feet, but you can't seem <laughs> to pull with your arms. And so that was really cute. I so personally true. am not typically someone to back a solo game. So you actually were the first solo game I ever backed on Kickstarter. Oh, amazing. And that's fantastic. Yeah. And that was really because of what you said, like the whole, uh, I guess, thinking about my childhood and those games that I love to play. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Caught my <laughs> attention. Nice. That's awesome. So then what kind of changes did you make while you were playtesting this design? So uh, the original idea, you know, when I just broke out uh, a small, you know, make a, made a little board and had some cubes from like the dollar store and was just playing around with it, I very quickly realized, okay, there's there's a concept here. Um, there's there's some fun puzzles and things that I can come up with, but it's got to be more than, you know, just these kind of standard crates. Very quickly, the game would become unfun um, because you, you need to evolve. You need to learn different things. And so I thought, okay, well, what other kind of blocks could it have? So I thought about, you know, like, boulders so what kind of like things that slide things you have to move out of the way um, things that are obstacles things that are helpful and came up with a bunch of different things and just started evolving different levels 
um, with it. And then I had to figure out, okay, well, how is this all going to be kind of presented? Are, are we going to jump from just one level to the next? And that's where I had the idea of very much like a video game where you, you know, you pass floor, floor one, 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 two, all the way to one ten, and then, oh, okay, you open up, you get to a new level and there's something else introduced. So I had to figure out a way that I could transition from um, one mechanic to the next with a different type of block and which one really uh, suited kind of like what's kind of like the next step up and which ones really rely on each other. So I had to really figure out, um, you know, the, the pattern and the difficulty and ramping up the challenge. And then even within each floor, uh, I might have like 10, 10 levels or more. I, I actually had more than that. I had to cut some out that I realized, you know, maybe aren't the best levels. Um, I didn't want to really keep them in the game or they might have become bonus levels that were a little bit different. But I had to figure out uh, a progression through the levels to make them sort of harder as you go along. Although for every player, you know, they're going to have a different experience. Some people might say, oh, that level was really easy. And then the next level uh, was was really hard. And other players might say, oh, this one was really tricky. And then they figured out something that the next level made it easier. So I just tried to generally make it uh, a challenge, something that ramped up over time, and then trying to figure out, okay, once somebody finishes these 50 levels, how can I get them to come back to it and not, rather than just, you know, put it on the shelf and, you know, maybe come back to it a year later or pass it on to somebody else. And that's where the idea of, you know, maybe building your own levels. And that became uh, a, a kind of a different system in there. But I thought, you know, this is a little different than, than this. Maybe people won't want to kind of build their own in this manner. So I came up with the idea of let's revisit these levels. And I had to, you know, check every single one of the 50 levels to see which ones would really fit with new challenges where I can add new things in because the the challenge with making a puzzle game like this is every level has to have a solution and it's very easy to to work through something and to try to figure out the solution to get it and be like oh no like everything's all blocked up there's there's no way to get through this is there actually a solution so that's one of the the biggest challenges to make sure that every level did have a viable solution and also had enough of a challenge that it wasn't just the same thing over and over again. For sure. And did you always intend for this to be a solo experience? Um, that's funny. Uh, the first time I, I was playtesting the game, I had the idea and I was just playtesting some levels on my own. And I brought it to um, Breakout Con in Toronto, uh, which is a local uh, board game convention. And sat down with some other game designers. There was a publisher there, um, play testers. And I said, oh, here's, here's, you know, the game I'm working on. I set up a level. And I said, uh, you know, I think there was two or three people there. And I said, just, you know, try here, here are the rules. Here's what you can do with the crates. Um, try, try to solve it, figure it out. And very quickly after, um, letting them play through a few levels, I realized that, you know, one person kind of takes control and they kind of figure it out and they, they kind of do it. Um, so it really wasn't so much of a cooperative experience. Um, it really felt like, yeah, this is, this is really something you, you play on your own, but at the same time, I have had a number of people say, you know, they played it with, um, their partner or their kids and they've really enjoyed that experience where maybe one person gets stuck and then the next person takes a turn or they try to figure it on, on their own. So it wasn't really kind of like marketed or sold as a, a co-op game or a game you could play with more than one person, but you certainly can um, if that's if that's the way you want to do it, if you want to introduce your kids to it or play it with your partner or roommate or somebody else. But um, it is really a solo experience um, at its core it's, it's not something you really, it's kind of like turn-based 
or or something you can collaborate on greatly. Although, like I said, uh, some people have found that it has been a good experience um, doing that uh, together. For sure. So then with it being a solo game, how did you go about playtesting this? Did you just like create a TTS and watch someone else play through the puzzles? <laughs> or did you like mail out stuff, have print and plays? What was your process? Yeah, so I did. I took a few different approaches. So uh, first of all, I, I played the levels tons and tons myself um, and just to try to figure out, you know, the, the progression of them, um, how it would be set up. Um, I took it to uh, board game um conventions, protospiels, uh, and, um, and different playtest nights to, uh, at, at local board game cafes and, um, and stores. Um, so I'd play test it there with a bunch of different people. I did put it online as well. So I had it on tabletop simulator, uh, which was available for people when they were checking out the Kickstarter, if they wanted to see what the game was like, uh, I play tested it at, I think it was called CrafterCon online, the, the game crafter would put on. And I think one other convention online, which I had a whole bunch of people sign up for. Um, so I play test. I just kind of watched them, observed, um, took feedback. And the great thing was being a solo game and a thinky game like this, most people when they're playing it, they just naturally kind of talked and explained what they were doing. They're like, okay, well, if I push this crate here, I can do, oh no, I can't do that. Okay. I'm thinking what I have to do is, you know, get this to over here, but I have to figure out how to do that. So it's really good kind of listening to people and seeing how they went about figuring out the levels, whether it was online um, or in person um, at all these different events. What did you find was more useful, the in-person or digital? I think in-person is always better um, in a lot of ways because you can you can see what people are doing um, maybe not as much for a solo game but like for a multiplayer game definitely you can see how people are reacting if they're looking at their phone if they're um, engaged in their what they're doing when it's not their turn but for a solo game even um, I did find it helpful because you could see you know that what somebody goes to reach for something oh no I don't want to do that and and you know just how they kind of figure it out and 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 do it that way um and i also had two two people i would call sort of lead play testers on the game as well um that i printed off copies for and i handed off uh, the game to them i said i want you to play through the campaign you know start to finish um give me feedback on anything and that's when you know i'd, I'd find out that a couple levels were kind of out of place or um were just really really hard to solve or a little too easy so i'd you know set up uh, some slightly different challenges and that type of thing. So that also worked uh, when I just handed off the game and just had um, those those kind of key play testers uh, just kind of give me back kind of like a report and details. And then I might say, okay, uh, try the level now with this. This is the new setup. Here's the new card for it. And then they would they would try it again. And they'd be like, okay, yeah, this is this is much better. Or okay, yeah, I, I can figure out the solution now. Gotcha. So if someone said that it was too difficult, would you just re rank it or adjust that level? Um, it would depend on the level. If it, if it was like just way too brain burny, um, I might consider taking it out. But I, I don't think that there were a lot of levels that I took out. Um, so would it, it just was, be like you push it towards like the farther end? Yeah, I think just I did that more so. Yeah, gotcha. I, I did that more so or added in as um, kind of extra levels because uh, by the end I wound up having, you know, or something like 80 levels. Um, so I really needed 50 for the base game. And then I uh, had other ones that I decided I was going to throw in as stretch goals um, for the campaign. And then other ones as kind of like a deluxe bonus pack that is like, okay, this is like a step up from uh, some of the ones you you saw in the actual game as well. So I'd either kind of re-rank them 
um, or add them um, to the like kind of the bonus pack or the stretch goals. Did you initially start out saying like, hey, I want this to be 50. I want there to be 50 challenges. Or is that something as you started going, you're like, yeah, I think I can hit this and then we'll have some <laughs> extra stuff here. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I didn't really have a number set in my mind when I started. I just kind of started making levels, starting with the crates and then coming up with different types of blocks and figuring how they would work. And then I would as I was doing that, I'd just come up with a bunch of levels for that. Um, and then just a bunch of levels that would use all the blocks in in some manner. And it, it wasn't really a set number. What it came down to, though, was I figured out that there were five different types of blocks. So it made sense to make sets of levels for each of them and one evolving to the next. And just looking at a lot of video games, how they would have you know, 10 levels um, and you move on to the next level, uh, the next floor or the next stage. Um, it just kind of made sense. So I, I think at some point I I was maybe like in the, in the forties for a number of levels that I had done. And I said, Let, let's, let's try to get this up to 50. I think that would be a nice round number. And then I'll continue to work on um, more levels and they could be, you know, bonus levels, or maybe I'll wind up swapping them out if, if they turn out to be better levels. Um, so it wasn't really the initial goal at all. It's just kind of as it evolved, um, it kind of felt like a good number, one that was a reasonable one to accomplish and for uh, the actual length of the game uh, for, for players as well. And at what point did you realize like, okay, this game, I need to have this published. And like, what were those steps going forward? Yeah, it, it's it's tough because uh, at that point I had been pitching games more to other publishers. I can't remember at that point exactly how many games I had, but uh, I have I have four games now with other publishers, and I was considering publishing with with uh, somebody else. There there was um, a local publisher that was very interested in the game, and he took a prototype and he was playing around with it. And uh, after a while, I, I spoke with him, and he said, "Yeah, it's it's a great game. I think just the the price point's going to be a little bit high." And I'm not sure how I'm going to market it, particularly as a solo game. So he's like, I really, I love it, but I don't know if I can market it well. And at that same time, I was, I was seeing um, some other solo games come out on Kickstarter, for example, uh, or, or uh, the, the biggest one was Unbroken um, by Artem Safarov, who's another local designer here in Toronto. And I knew him as well. So I sat down and I talked with him about, you know, what was your experience and how did you go about building your audience? for a solo game. And he, you know, talked about using BGG and board game geek that is, and uh, some of the solo Facebook groups that, and, and I had been involved with them a little bit, but he said, yeah, like the solo Facebook groups were great because th they're people that are just dedicated to solo games. And his game was a purely solo game. So I said, I started to think, you know what? I think I could do this. I think this is a game that I could market myself. I'm already involved in the solo gaming group. I could get much more involved in there, start to get some feedback and hear from people um, in that group. Um, I was in the board game design lab and, and other groups. And I thought, you know what? I think this is a unique enough game and an experience that some people out there will want to see that I think I can do this. And, and I'm, I was very passionate about the game. I, I loved those types of puzzle games and I loved creating it. So it was just naturally going to come through when I was talking about the game, how um, how amazing I, I felt it was. Uh, and I thought that other people would like it. And the other thing that I got was after that publisher handed the game back to me and he said, you know, the price point, he, he you know checked with manufacturers about the price point and how much it was going to be to make and that type of thing. And he told me like roughly what, what it was going to be. And, and I said, you know what? 
maybe I have to put on my developer hat as well and, and look at this a little more keenly and say, are there ways that I can actually trim some of the components down? Because, you know, this game had has a ton of wooden blocks, one inch wooden blocks, and they're all screen printed um, and painted and it, they're not cheap to produce. So I looked at that and I said, okay, what, what's the minimum number of, of uh, blocks that I can get this down to? I, I had 52 at the time. And I was able to look through all the levels and pare them down and figure out what was the minimum number of crates, minimum number of boulders and all the other types that I would need. And I actually was able to get it down to 38 blocks where all the levels still functioned well. Uh, there was just kind of a little bit less kind of noise, you might want to say, on some of the levels, um, red herrings and other blocks that weren't necessary and ones that I had to, uh, levels I had to adjust slightly. But it turned out that all the levels played just as well, if not better, uh, when I trimmed that down. So that was a real lesson for me to really look at like components and everything you need and say, do you really need all this? Do you need all these cards? Do you need all these components? Because I, I was able to you know, trim out a good chunk, almost like more than 25% of the, the blocks and still have a really great experience. Plus, it was a bonus for players because they would generally have less setup as well. For the levels, and that that was something that I was very cognizant of as as well. Like being uh, a tabletop game as opposed to a video game. A video game, you just you know click the button and you're on the next level. It's already set up for you. This you have to actually set up for yourself. So I didn't want it to be onerous for players. And and I know some people will say, um, you know, I'd rather play this in a video game format. I don't want to set up the levels, and that's that's totally fine. I mean, just like any game, it's not for everyone. Um, but you know, those are some of the lessons that I learned about you know development and and going into publishing, but I, I just felt that this was really a game that I could publish on my own. I was interested in getting into publishing. I'd run one Kickstarter before that, that had failed and I, I'd learned some lessons from that as well. And I always kind of thought, you know, maybe when the right game comes along, I would try it again. And it was, it was just the right fit. And since that time I've, I've been keeping kind of a hybrid model of games that kind of fit that puzzly, thinky kind of brand are ones that I might consider self-publishing, whereas other games might fit better with other publishers. It's so interesting. Yeah, I feel like as a developer, just or just as a designer looking at your game, immediately I would try to make sure that the setup never takes longer than the puzzle takes to solve. And I'm sure yes. that was something that you had to think about immediately when you started working on the project. Absolutely, yeah. Also, that's great that you were able to cut down the components and that it made it a better game and didn't make you like have to lose part of the charm. Yeah, and that was an important thing. I, I didn't want to trim just you know to keep the price down to get less components. Um, it had to still be a great experience. If I if I cut out those blocks and it made the game you know twenty five percent worse, then I, I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to be the the best experience uh, for players. And fortunately, I was, fortunately, I was able to do that uh, through some development work, cutting things down. Uh, trimming it down. And like I said, it, it created a better experience because it was, it was a faster setup for players and all the levels were, were just as interesting, if not better. And what kind of feedback did you get from like the solo enthusiasts on Facebook or through your Kickstarter? <laughs> um, well, I, I started off by, uh, you know, just engaging in the group and talking about other games that I liked, asking questions and that type of thing before I ever talked about my own game. And then when I started to talk about my own game, at that point, I was trying to figure out what the theme would be, right? At that point, I just had wooden blocks and a character moving around. And I thought, you know, is this like 
um, a wizard that's trapped you and you're trying to get through this or, or what is it going to be? Is it kind of like a pixelated video game thing? Um, should it be like an Indiana Jonesy type Tomb Raider kind of a theme? But I wasn't sure. I kind of had a feeling of which direction I wanted to go, but I, I wanted to get other people's thoughts. So the first thing I did was, was poll uh, the solo Facebook group. And uh, the overwhelming majority said they, they thought the idea of the Indiana Jones adventure style kind of game would work. And I, that was the one that I was kind of hoping <laughs> that they would decide on. Um, and I was like, fantastic. Uh, so I went and ran with that and, you know, went out and got my um, illustrator and, uh, you know, got him to, to do it kind of in that, in that theme. Uh, so that was the first thing that was super helpful was figuring out what, what the theme was, how it was going to be thematic and fit really well with the mechanics. And then um, aside from that, it would be, um, uh, just trying to trying to figure out um, what other things people liked in in games in their solo games. Did they want um, a start and a finish? Did they want a complete a game or complete an, obje- complete an objective versus a high score? What I found was most gamers, not all, but most gamers prefer an objective. You know, a win lose objective as opposed to beating their high score over and over again. I mean, some games that works well with, um, but just feedback on that. And then on the game itself, um, letting them know that I was, you know, testing it at like CrafterCon and other events um, and getting people to sign up. So some people signed up through there. Um, some people played it through TTS that found out about it there. Um, just feedback when I was posting things, people would be like, oh, I'm really interested in this. Where can I find out more? And I'd you know, lead them to my landing page or my Kickstarter page um, and just get feedback from them and then feedback on the Kickstarter page itself. What else would you like to see? Um, so these groups were, were really great just for being kind of encouraging and understanding what solo gamers were looking for in general. And then for some specific feedback on things about the game, like the, like the theme and the gameplay. And then even, you know, some of them going out of the way to, to test it, give feedback, which was fantastic. That is so awesome. And then you as a player, do you play solo games typically? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, at the time when I was developing relics of Rajavahara, I had started to get into solo gaming more. Um, my first game was Friday, uh, which is a great um, kind of deck building uh, solo game, uh, resource management type of game. Um, one Wonderful uh, game. And then I discovered Unbroken, uh, which I play tested um, numerous times uh, for Artem at local design, design events and uh, really thought, you know, there's there's some really good experiences here. I mean, it's, it's a different experience playing solo versus multiplayer. I, I love both. Uh, but, you know, sometimes there's just, you know, not another player around or you have some time on your own and you just want to scratch that itch. Um, I love the, the social aspects of games, but I also love the the thinkiness of games and being able to like pull off something clever, uh, pull off a combo, uh, figure something out, problem solve. Um, so I, I love all those different aspects. So yeah, I was getting into games like um, like Friday, like uh, trying to think now, um, Unbroken and uh, some others. But yeah, there, and then there were other games that I had in my collection that I realized, oh, they have solo modes as well <laughs> or other solo variants uh, like Quacks of Quedlingburg has a great solo variant online on BGG some others as well. And, and since then, I've grown my solo gaming collection, not nearly as big as uh, some others, but I've been playing a lot of other games like Under Falling Skies, which is fantastic. Uh, Cristallo. And Cristallo was another one that got me thinking about it too, because Liberty Kiefer, the designer of that, we kind of became friends on Facebook. Um, 
and and I loved her game, and I I went up getting uh, getting a print and play, and then getting the actual copy of the game when I had the chance. And she played Relics of Rajvahara, and it was actually um, helpful uh, during my campaign as well, um, letting her audience know about uh, about my game as well. So yeah, there's just tons of great solo games and and other multiplayer games that have solo versions that I've really really enjoyed and appreciated as well. That's so cool. So then because the solo community kind of helped you with the theme, who helped you come up with the name of the game? (laughs) Um, That one I came up with on my own. Um, Once I knew... Once I had that theme and I knew it was going to be kind of this Indiana Jonesy Tomb Raider kind of adventure, um, what I did was I, I just went on a Google search and I, I was just trying to find really cool looking um, temples and buildings and places of interest. And I did a Google search and I was just scrolling through um, this one site that had you know all these different pictures from um, tourists and, and, and visitors. And um, as I was going through them, I came across this one amazing picture. It was this, um, like a building with this huge tree growing out of it. And there's other trees growing out from the side. It looked like, you know, nature had kind of taken it over. And I was like, this looks so cool. And uh, when I looked at it closer, I discovered that um, the place was called Taprom. And in history, though, it was previously known as Rajavahara. And I thought, oh, that's, that's a really cool sounding name. And... Um, I was like, well, you know, what are, what are you doing? What are you collecting in this game? Well, you're getting like treasures, you're getting gems, you're getting um, relics. And it was like, th- that name just kind of came. I was trying to think of something. Is there an R word that kind of goes with that kind of for alliteration relics of Rajavahara? So basically you're collecting these relics um, in this um, te- temple, but I actually uh, refer to it more as like a palace because um, it's a little bit more um, culturally sensitive um, as opposed to uh, to a temple. Um, but basically it's like the palace of Rajvahara in the game. So that's that's really where I came up with the name. It was just just amazing looking um, uh, wonder of the world, uh, in my opinion. And I, I just wanted to kind of pay homage to it with that name. Very cool. Yeah, I would have never guessed. <laughs> <laughs> and so how long do you think it took from that initial inspiration all the way to the game going out to the backers? Oh, to backers. Uh, that took a while. I'd say um, from the time I had my first idea until it um, until I ran the Kickstarter, it was probably about three years. And, you know, when I say three years and I think um, as, as designers, we know that's not um, working on this 40 hours a week yeah. for, th- for three years, uh, but just kind of off and on. And like I said, for a while, a publisher was looking at it and that was kind of on hold for a bit, um, but came back to it again afterwards and developed it even further. Um, but yeah, off and on for the course about three years and then ran the campaign and took, uh, I guess, just a little over a year for it to be manufactured and uh, and shipped out and everything. So it was about a little over four years, I would say, from from the time of initial concept and first prototype uh, to the backers getting it in their hands. All right. Yeah. I mean, you also had, wasn't that during COVID times too? So I'm sure that probably messed some stuff up with manufacturing. Yeah, that was, that was an interesting experience. So my first successful Kickstarter, um, I launched it just a little into COVID. Um, it was around July, 2020, I believe. COVID hit a few months before that and everything had shut down. And uh, it was at that time I had already been thinking about um, launching the game and 
um, and trying to figure out when I was kind of thinking, you know, maybe late summer, maybe even fall. And I actually got an invite to go to uh, Essen, Essenspiel. Um, and I was, and uh, the person that offered um, the spot there said, yeah, you can help me out in my booth and you can even have some time at the table and you can demo your own game. You can demo relics. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. So I was like, maybe I should put it off until after Essen and, you know, launch it maybe November, late October. Um, possibly. And then the world fell apart and um, Essen wasn't happening. So I said, well, you know what? I've got time. Um, let's let's work on this. I already had you know the art in progress and everything. And I said, I think I can launch this sooner than then. Um, so I had everything basically in place. So I just, you know, continue to build up the audience and everything and and plan for that. But yeah, it was it was quite the experience because, you know, very shortly after that, um, shipping became problematic. There were a lot of lockdowns. Um, shipping prices went through the roof. Um, luckily, when I got my quotes, they had all like luckily and unluckily, um, prices had already started to shoot up on freight shipping. So I already had a good idea of what it was going to be, and it didn't go up a ton from that time to when I actually shipped. Um, but yeah, there were there were a lot of things that changed. Uh, prices did go up even a little. I think with manu- manufacturing, I think stayed the same. But for my next print run, um, the next campaign that I did with the expansion and the reprint the manufacturing costs went up significantly. It was up about 25 or 30% in from the time I printed my first one till I got the next quote was I think less than six months and it had gone up 25% for, for production costs, which is astronomical and freight shipping was, you know, bouncing around all over the place. So it was a matter of figuring this all out when shipping, not only just the rates going up, but also, uh, you know, you were seeing, um, you know, the, the boat that got stuck in the Suez Canal, um, you saw all, all these ports that had, you know, dozens of these huge freight ships just sitting in the harbor, not getting unloaded. Um, and in my first campaign, the boat, you know, it just sat in the harbor and I couldn't get any updates. I was like, anything happening there? Do you have any updates? And they're like, we'll tell you when it docks. Basically, there's no priority. Everything's just sitting there. We'll know when, when it lands. And it sat in the harbor for about a month, I think before it got to uh, got to be unloaded. And then it was about, I think, a week before it actually got unloaded and then it sat and then it had to sit waiting for a train and they were backed up with trains. And then the train had to take it to a destination and it was delayed. And then it got to its destination. Then it had to be unloaded there and put on a truck and, and uh, put uh, sent to the fulfillment center. And then for all the ones coming to Canada, they had to get put on another truck and then they went to the border and they sat at the border for over a month waiting to be cleared because the priority was food and, and medicine and everything naturally. Um, but everything else just sat. So, you know, the Canadian, poor, my poor Canadian backers and my, myself even waiting for my game, I had to wait another month beyond that even for it just clear there. So there were tons and tons of delays. And unfortunately I, I didn't deliver on time. Um, but you know, that's part of, you know, being a first time creator, but also having to navigate all these massive, massive delays. Like the, the shipping probably took an extra three or four months beyond what I expected. Um, and it was just something you just can't predict um, when, when ships are just going to be sitting for, for months um, and, and trucks are going to be sitting at the border for, for a month or more. It's just something you can't predict. So best you can do is just really keep in communication with your backers, kept updating them, letting them know what the status was, letting them know I'd let them know as soon as you know I had more details. And you know most people were just happy that I, w- I was keeping up the communication. And they were like, you know, don't worry. Uh, most Kickstarters deliver late. You know, this is your first big one. And, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, I got it only a month late was fantastic. I've got other games that, you know, I've been sitting waiting for six months or a year beyond, you know, when they were supposed to be delivered and I haven't heard a thing. So um, 
big lesson there for, for everybody else that's going to be running a Kickstarter. Just keep engaged with your community, even if there's not a lot to say, just let them know where you're at, uh, that, you know, you're, you know, you understand their frustration and that they're, that there's delayed and you're, you're delayed as well. You haven't even got your copies, uh, but know that you're still super excited and anything you can do to kind of keep the momentum going as well. I was going to ask what your favorite and least favorite part of the whole journey was. And I feel like that might be your least favorite. <laughs> the shipping. Yeah. The, dealing with the whole delays and everything. Cause uh, like, I mean, as a creator, you do everything you can, but some things are just honestly, just completely out of your control. I have no control um, about, you know, how long it's going to take to ship, how long it's going to sit at a port, how long it's going to sit at customs or what delays are going to happen. You have zero control. The only thing you do is, you know, uh, keep in touch with all your points of contact and let your, let your backers know, um, just keep them in touch, uh, keep in touch with them and, and keep them up to date as best as you possibly can. And so then your favorite part, uh, favorite part, um, it's just seeing the, the excitement, um, both during the campaign, people saying, oh, you know, I've never seen anything like this. I can't wait to get my game. And then, you know, when it actually did get delivered, so many people saying, um, you know, what a great experience it was. So many people opening, opening up the box and being like, wow, this is like beautiful production. Like that was one of the things I really wanted to to um, hit the nail on the head with, which, which was the production and the experience. Um, like I mentioned before, these one inch wooden blocks that were all screen p- printed with, um, you know, that the look like a crate, that look like an actual boulder, all these different things. And um, the experience of opening up a box. I want it to be very much kind of like a legacy game because I, I loved Pandemic Legacy, like the experience of like yeah. ooh, open box number 42 and uh, peel this other uh, thing out and see what you get. Like you don't know what you're getting next. And I wanted that same experience. So you open one box. Ooh, what am I getting next? Oh, okay. Here's the card. Here, here are the components. So how do they work? Well, the card explains. Here's the new thing. One small mechanic after another. So it's very easy, just like a tutorial in a video game or going from one level to the next. Oh, now I know how to jump. Now I know how to run. Now I know how to shoot. Um, I want it to be that kind of experience where they just get one new little thing. It was very easy to incorporate. So um, yeah, just seeing people's experience and, and having them say like, oh, wow, the, like the production quality on this is fantastic. Um, I love the game. I can't wait to you know get it on the table. I've left it sitting on the table. Other people come by and they've played it. Um, just, you know, hearing that from other people just made it all worth it. That's amazing. I'm glad that you got that excitement and you got to experience it from what people are telling you. And hopefully you got to see it in person too. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have to say I had some of the best backers. I had no major issues. I mean, the biggest thing was some people suggesting some really wacky, crazy things on on the first campaign, but other backers kind of jumped in and were like, why, why are you like, this is a great looking game. Why are you suggesting these really crazy things? And I kind of stood back and just said, you know, great ideas. I'll consider them. Um, you know, maybe something for the future. I don't want to, you know, delay production and that type of thing. But other than that, I had amazing, fantastic backers, all really supportive. Uh, I had backers, uh, you know, saying, oh, do you, are, are you looking to do translations or do you need reviews of translations? I had people reaching out and say, oh, I can do a, a German rule translation, Italian, French, Spanish. So I had like four translators, like right off the bat, they're just like, yeah, just for, uh, for a copy, I'll do it. I'm like, Gladly. <laughs> so I was able to wow. pro- provide um, translations. And then I had other backers where I, I would say, you know, I've got, you know, somebody who's going to translate in French. Would anybody be willing to, to review? And I had so many people reach out and say, yeah, I'd be glad to do it. And, you know, just the the support and, you know, just help for people thinking like, oh, I'm going to get like 
a translation in my own language, sure, I'd be glad to help. Like people were just so supportive and helpful. That is so awesome. I feel like there's not a lot of industries that you have situations like that where people are so willing to help, especially since like translating something isn't always the easiest. I mean, sometimes it is, but I mean, they don't have to do that out of the kindness of their heart, but it's great because then more people can play the game that don't speak English. Exactly. Yeah. And that that's one of the reasons I love the community, both, both the board game community and the design community, how people are not competitive. Well, I mean, when you're playing a game, of course you're competitive. You want to win or if it's co-op, you want to win together. But when you're designing games, it's not the feeling of um, oh, um, I've got to, you know, hide this game away. Only I can see it. Or, um, I don't want their game to succeed. I want my game to do better. It's, it's really about bringing more people in because, you know, if Danielle creates a game and people love that game, there's even more chance people are going to be like, oh, let's check out Joe's game. Let's check out Sam's game. Let's check out, you know, everybody's game because, you know, once you play one game, you want to play them all. Um, you discover this world and, you know, people, you know, start their collection, start playing games, uh, start going to gaming groups, playing games more with their friends. Um, so it just opens people up to to buy more. It's not like a car where you're going to buy one and you're not going to buy another one, perhaps for another five or 10 years. You're probably going to buy a bunch of different games if you get into it. Um, so helping others to make great games, it just makes a better experience. The, be- the better the games are that are out there, um, the better experience people will have and they'll want to to try new games. So it's, I love that it's not a competitive thing. It's, it's very cooperative and people are just out there to help each other. I completely agree. I love the community in general, just like there's not many things I can compare it to, which just makes it that much more beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely. Well then here, all right. If you're going to give a piece of advice to the designers out there that are listening to this episode, what piece of advice would you give? Uh, the first one would be, get that idea out of your head and onto the table. Um, there's so many times you talk to somebody and they're like, oh, I have an idea for a game. And, you know, you see them six months later or a year later at a convention. Oh, how's that idea coming along? Oh, you know, I was still thinking about it. I'm not sure. Um, you, you're not going to complete a game. You're not going to make any progress if it stays in your head. So just make the simplest, easiest prototype. Um, if you have a, you know, a game where you're going to you figure you're going to have like 200 different unique cards with all different abilities, you don't need to make all 200. Just make 10, um, put them on the table, try them out you know, hand write them or just use a simple program to put in some values. You don't need to get all the art and everything in place. Just make a simple prototype, test it out on your own just to see, okay, what would one player do? What would the next player do? How would the flow of the game go? What what does a turn look like? And very quickly you'll see, oh, okay, this this doesn't work. You know, having this many cards in my hand is, you know, way too much AP, analysis paralysis, or um, I don't have enough choice here. Uh, there's no much for game. And then you quickly see, you know, what's fun, what's not, what has to change. And you'll make some little tweaks and you'll kind of build it out from there. And then you can start to show it to other people and then get their feedback. But the, the biggest thing is just taking that idea from your head and making something with it. That's that's the key step because otherwise you're just not going to make any progress and that game's just not going to come to fruition. I think that's great. Yep. I always just say, just do it. <laughs> but yes. I'm pretty sure that's the Nike saying. So <laughs> I guess I'm ripping them off my bad. <laughs> True. I mean, and it's great to, to learn, um, to listen to, you know, podcasts like this, read books um, and, and blogs and learn, but you can't just do that. Um, you have to take what you've learned and then take action. That That's where it all comes down to because ideas, you know, ideas are great. Um, you can't have a game without an idea, but ideas really do become a dime a dozen because, you know, I've got a list of, you know, 
hundreds of game ideas. Um, but if I don't do anything with it, then it doesn't really matter. So it's, it's all about taking action uh, from what you've learned. Oh my God. My mom has had the problem where she's making friends and then they find out what like her daughter does. They immediately go like, Oh my God, my daughter also came up with a game, like talking about their five-year-old or seven-year-old or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, Oh, we'll tell her it. And you just have to give us a little piece of the money. I'm like, and my mom's like, that's not how it works. I was like, good job, mom. You listen to me enough to know that's not how it works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so funny. So yeah, I definitely agree to just get it out there and try it out and see what happens from there. But um, do you have any other projects that fans should be looking out for that are either wrapping up or coming out soon or what's going on? Yeah, um, my last game was 14 Frantic Minutes, and it was uh, a success on Kickstarter. And right now it's on GameFound for late pledges. And it's a real-time chase and escape game where you have basically been working for this um, evil, uh, this genius, this eccentric genius. And it turns out that the climate change device you thought you were making is actually a doomsday device. So you get together with your coworkers and you say, we got to get out of here. We got to, you know, tell the public, we got to go to the papers with this. And just at that time, the alert, alert goes on overhead, 14 minutes to lockdown. He's found out that you found out his plans. So he's trying to chase you down and capture you. So you've got to work together either solo or up to four players cooperatively with these uh, Tetrisy like uh, polyomino pieces trying to complete circuits to unlock one room to the next and go through a series of seven rooms that get harder um, as you go along connecting um, the, the lock to different nodes, uh, which is different every single time and uh, trying to get through these seven rooms but every two minutes, you've got this evil genius moving forward. So you have the pressure of, you know, the time only having 14 minutes, but also this uh, chase. Uh, he's coming after you on the whole time. Uh, you're listening to this uh, very thematic soundtrack um, and you can hear the footsteps. You can hear the background noise and you can tell when he's coming and when you have to move on. So uh, that's on uh, GameFound uh, right now for Late Pledges. Oh God, I would have so much anxiety hearing that. I'd be like, how? I like, I just played Painting the Roses and I already had so much anxiety about the like Queen of Hearts coming at me from my head. Oof. <laughs> oh, geez. Well then, as my last question to finish up the episode, if you could be the designer of any game that you did not design, so that could be Monopoly, it could be Twister, it could be something meatier than that, what would it be? Oh, that's a really great question. There, there are so, so many great games out there. Um, and I had a couple pop into my head right there, but I think I'm going to have to go back to uh, the game that really got me into modern board gaming, made me say, oh my goodness, this is what games can do? Like, I had no idea, was the game Pandemic uh, by Matt Leacock. And it's obviously spawned so many other games, um, all the different versions, expansions, legacy um, it's just such a fantastic game. And, and I loved it because when I first experienced, it, I was like, wow, okay. Games can be cooperative. You don't have to be competitive and playing against each other. You can work together. Oh, and there's these things called action points. You're not just doing like one thing. You can do all these different things and have to choose. And oh my goodness, you have all these outbreaks happening everywhere and you have to take care of them. But at the same time, you have this other goal. So this competing goal to win the game with all these quote unquote fires you have to put out. And I just thought, that, this is such an amazing experience. And, and the fact that it's, you know, become such a big hit and blossomed and grown into so many other games. Um, I would love to have been the designer of that game. I will say I'm pretty sure that was my first cooperative game and it is quite good. I still use that as my introduction to any cooperative game of people that are, I use like maybe horrified or something else along the same lines or like forbidden Island, but very solid gameplay. 
And also, yeah. I think it actually sold better during the pandemic, funny enough. <laughs> I believe so. I, I've, I've yeah. heard that. I think just, just with the name, it's like, did Matt Leacock know this was coming? No, just kidding. Um, but yeah, that and a Forbidden Island uh, were two the first two co-op games I think I ever experienced. And it was funny because my wife actually got me into modern board gaming. She was watching Tabletop with Will Wheaton and uh, she saw all these great games and she said, okay, I've got a list of five games. We have to go to the game store and buy them now. So I said, okay. <laughs> And those were two of them. And I was like, oh, thank goodness we bought them. I was, at first I was like, I hope these are good because uh, we're spending a bit of money here. Um, but they were fantastic. And Pandemic, though, was the one that stood out. I was just like, I played it and I was like, wow, that this, this is an amazing experience. That's so awesome. I wish that I would have someone come over and be like, let's just go to the store and buy all these games. I would be <laughs> such a sucker. I'd be like, okay, except I now am trying to spend less money on games because my collection has leaked into almost every room of my apartment at this point. And it's problematic. That yeah, happens. but it's like the time I have to move is going to suck. <laughs> never move. Just just never move. There you go. Yeah, I'm just going to die in this apartment. It'll be fine. Me and my cats. <laughs> Well, hey, uh, thank you to the audience and everyone for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unbox, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 54, Relics of Rajavahara. And thanks again, Joe, for joining us. For anyone trying to find you online or find your course, where can they reach out to you? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Danielle. This has been a blast. Um, if you're looking for me online, the best place to reach me is probably my site, boardgamedesigncourse.com. And that's where I have all my blogs, books, courses, and details. And you can just reach out to me as well if you have any questions. Sweet. Is there any social media you'd want them to follow or is it just the website? Uh, the website's the main one, uh, but I am also on Instagram as uh, jslack22. And then I'm your host, Danielle Reynolds. If you're looking to find me on social media, you can check out my Instagram and my Twitter under the username Token Gamer. And that's G-A-Y-M-E-R because I like puns. But uh, thanks, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining Danielle for another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.